Welcome to On Our Campus, a podcast dedicated to exposing corruption, discrimination, and misconduct in public higher education. This series, co-hosted by me, Suzette Grillot, and my friend and colleague, Jess Eddy, will focus primarily on the University of Oklahoma, but will occasionally address issues of corruption and misconduct at other institutions of higher ed as well. There is much to talk about when it comes to corruption on our campus, so let's get going. Hello, and welcome back to On Our Campus. This is Suzette Grillat, and I'm here with my co-host, Jess Eddy. And we have two special guests with us today, Jamela Reed and Miles Francisco. Uh, Jamela and Miles are two of the co-founders of BERT, the Black Emergency Response Team at the University of Oklahoma, and have been very active and engaged in addressing, responding to, and addressing the various racist incidents that we've had at the uh, University of Oklahoma. So welcome to the podcast, Jamila and Miles. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, well, we actually invited you and made arrangements for to have this conversation today. We've been talking about it actually for a long time, mm-hmm. and we just made arrangements to do it a few days ago before there was the latest racist incident mm-hmm. at the University of Oklahoma, which of course uh, is in the news this week. The Professor Peter Gade in the Journalism College that uh, used very inappropriate language in the classroom. And so... We weren't really here today to talk about that incident, and we are going to talk, of course, about your work in a longer-term way, but what would you like to say? Is there anything you would like to discuss about what happened this week? I mean, it honestly came out of thin air. I know Big 12 Black Student Government Conference is coming to town. Angela Davis was announced that morning, Mm -hmm. and I was surely happy. Remember my announcement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, he's also worked with Big 12 to get Angela Davis here, so big shout out to Miles on that. I appreciate Mm -hmm. you. And we are all so excited about that. Thank you so much for bringing her to campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But in that same timeline, scroll, um, Janae, I follow her on Twitter, and she had posted, I was like, Wait, <laughs> you can see him on Twitter. There, I was like, "Wait, the hard ER? Like, was he was he like trying to use it in the hip hop contextual way?" And she's like, "No hard ER." And I was just like, "You know, part of Tire Nine, go ahead, hit the bias report." And I was like, "Okay." Then I immediately like DM'd Miles and was like, "Hey, this just happened. What are we gonna do?" Um, so yeah, that was and then and um, I responded like, mm, "I don't think <laughs> yeah," because um, and we can talk a bit about sort of like. Bert's process and, you know, how we've gotten to the place we are now. But because at the University of Oklahoma, these incidents happen so often and on different levels, um, we don't necessarily want to be like the referee as to what deserves attention and what doesn't. Sometimes some things just pop off. And when Jamila, you know, DM me, I also saw Janae's tweet. You know, I wasn't planning on us releasing a statement or, you know, holding any town halls or anything of that nature. Um, But it hit at the right time, <laughs> yeah. clearly and struck a chord within the student population. And I think particularly in the black community, and you know, when you listen to black students on campus, um, I think it's fair to say that a majority of us have been in the classroom, right, where a professor has said the word, you know, has used that ra- racial epithet. And whether for educational purposes, which I don't know that, it, that that is ever a thing, or, you know, just like loosely saying it as Professor Gade did on Tuesday, so it's just been really fascinating because, you know, I wasn't expecting this to, to make national news um, or even, you know, state local news, um, but it did, and it really popped off and really, again, struck a chord with the community. And as a result, as us as student leaders, as student activists on campus, we have to be there for our community, um, but also be there to show yet again the ways that the university has failed its students, um, but also failed its faculty um, and staff and not equipping them with the tools that they need to teach a ever-diversifying campus and ever-diversifying world. And, you know, just the inexcusable nature of not having any type of mandatory training for professors, but also that in 2020 we're at a place where professors can't, don't understand, right, these differences. And Well, I have to just say, comparison, yeah. I cannot tell you how shocked I was. And, and to hear you say, Miles, that you've been in classrooms where this is word has been used before is mm-hmm. I mean I've been teaching the college classroom for 30 more than 30 years as a graduate student as a professor I'm just blown away by it mm-hmm. I was completely I mean I'm I don't know I guess you know I'm not shocked by these incidents happening anymore on campus but a professor actually mm-hmm. purposefully using this word in this context especially 
I mean, it was just really mm. shocking to me. And I'm just, I'm so sorry that this continues to happen and that faculty do not do better and they must. And so yeah. I, I think we'll have a chance to talk about that as well um, in terms of what has to happen here. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, 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 as a former OU student and then um, a director in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, I wasn't surprised, especially um, by it being from that individual, you know, who's exhibited problematic behaviors toward women. He has a reputation. Throughout his, his tenure. But I think what I'm really interested in here is is that it's exposing a clear ineptitude that's common among white people um, in understanding issues of race and identity. And it opens the door, and I mean, this is why I'm, I'm so impressed by uh, you two and, and the students at OU who are educating white faculty, staff, the administration on these types of issues. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, you know, a lot of the social media discussion has been white people rushing to say, in what context was this used? Mm -hmm. um, and how was it used? In an apologistic way. Yeah. And that has been something that to me is revealing that, that white people just don't understand and in many cases are not taking the time to listen. Just as a population, we're not, we're rushing in to ask questions, to interrogate, to defend, mm. as opposed to listening to Miles and Jamila and Janae and how this, regardless of the context, I mean, Janae explained the context. The context was clearly explained and it was overlooked was how it made black students feel. Mm. And that's that's the, the common behavior of predominantly white institutions that they somehow get to determine what is and what was in such a way that um, demeans, condescends, and does not respect the the feelings, the trauma, the the existence of black people who are are hurt by that. It takes a lot. Um, I know we had a town hall meeting last night. And that room was, it was filled with emotions, with people, with ideas. You know, sadly, I cannot quote anything from that um, town hall uh, for the respect of everybody in the town hall. But I can say, you know, as a black community, you know, it's tough. Although I've been used to it, you know, my peers aren't used to it. Uh, I can get up and say, okay, that's what we're going to do. Um, in that situation, you know, yes, this week, you know, we were like, okay, this is taking steam. So what are we doing next? You know, people want to interview, you know, we know, like, you know, this is what we need to do. This is the plans and actions, right? Um, but for the students in Gaylord, you know, that's journalism. Now journalism is turning on you. What you're used to reporting on, you can't report on because it's about you. I know Janae um, and the courage of NABJ, which is the National Association of Black Journalists. It takes a lot of courage because journalism is your face. I know Janae took a huge risk when she put that tweet out there and giving her honest opinion. And it was a huge risk. And even now, you know, they still have to. My friend, who works for O.U. Nightly, she's uh, black, and she has to direct O.U. Nightly tonight or being Gaylord all day. You know, it's kind of fighting like, why did they have to go through this? But also, this is expected. Like you talked about before, you know, this is the fourth racist incident since Burt has been started. You know, that's four racist incidents in four semesters. Every semester, it's like clockwork. Second month, you're gonna have a racist incident. Yeah. And it's disappointing, but I'm not surprised at this point. You know, it has to be a culture change. You know, administration can talk, you know, I'm here to talk all you want to, till I'm blue in the face. But until real change happens, I mean, it's going to continue to happen over and over again. And these are demands that were made like over five years ago by Unheard. These are the same demands we we're making a year ago. Yes, university takes time to change. But in some point, diversity and inclusion can't just be up to the marginalized to do. Um, it can't be our job. Why, why is it our job to educate you? We don't get paid for this, you know? People are paying for that class and can't go because a professor is being offensive, being racist and oppressive. Um, it's up to the majority to take that change, accept it, and do the work. I mean, I know Jess mentioned that we're so impressed by the work that you all are doing in response to these things, educating us, but like you just said, Jamila, it's not your job to educate us on these things you know there are tools there are mechanisms there are things that we need to commit ourselves to 
And so we've got to make sure, and people like Jess and me have to make sure that the white community is doing the work and, you know, actually going to the trainings and doing their reading and, and, and are committed to understanding why this matters. Mm. But you just mentioned unheard. I wonder if we could do just a little bit of a history here. Yeah. Yep. Because, um, so Bert, the Black Emergency Response Team, of which you two are, are co-founders, are two of the co-founders, mm-hmm. started a little over a year ago, right, in mm-hmm. response to that second blackface incident in January of 2019. Yep. And so we want to hear about that. But you just mentioned Unheard, and that, that actually, as you mentioned, started about five years ago with a certain set of demands. Yeah. So can you kind of refresh our memories a mm-hmm. little bit on kind of how this movement began and how it's morphed maybe into uh, what you all are doing? Yeah. Before we go to Unheard, we have to understand the history of black activism at OU. So um, Ada Lewis Sipio Fisher, mm-hmm. who first applied to be a law student here at the University of Oklahoma. George McLaurin was uh, one of the first black students. Um, then, you know, you had Dr. Henderson, who was the first black native in Norman, and the work they've been doing. Fast forwarding past all the people, you know, with respect to them, follower they have done, so I was like, what, 65, 67? You know, is first founded, um, Alpha Alpha Zeta Zeta chapter is like for the first black organization founded on campus. Then let's fast forward to what, 2000, yeah. 2015, a little bit before that Unheard is, so, yeah. Yeah, Unheard is founded. And that's at the history of black activism. This group is founded before SAE. Um, they have been doing work. And then when SAE happened, Unheard becomes this bigger thing. Unheard was one of the first groups of activism actually formed, documented that we still have. Uh, well, in this era of uh, technology, Unheard um, were the first ones to use the strategies we use now, um, using social media, uh, using walks, using sit-ins, using die-ins in the union, on campus. And, you know, we still use their docs to this day, you know, as guiding documents as what did they do before us to what we do today. And I think it's important to note that you know, unheard was uh, formulated uh, before SAE, right? Before the, you know, chant heard around the world happened. That was um, in the spring of 2015. Yeah, just right. your, yeah, yeah. To so refresh our memories. Um, they had already formulated uh, and been working and been calling for things from the administration and from um, staff and faculty and their fellow students um, long before that incident occurred because the black experience here at the University of Oklahoma has always been one that has been unkind and, you know, oppressive and unwilling to do what it needs to do to to really create a space where black students can flourish. So, again, the use of social media was really strong for them. And then after SAE, they already had a bit of the infrastructure. But I think after SAE was really when they, you know, had to build this foundation that, you know, Bert was really able to utilize a year ago. So, obviously, the work that Unheard did on this campus pushing activism forward, pushing student voices forward, student activism forward was crucial. And again, their docs, you know, some of the the statistics could be updated, but many of the demands still have yet to be met, right? Um, And, you know, many of the demands that NABJ, the National Association for Black Journalists, are calling for the same demands. Um, They were calling for in 2015 the same demands that we gave to Evans Hall a year ago at that march, right? So uh, it's just this circle. And for our listeners, Miles, Jamela, could you tell us, remind us, what are some of those demands, Mm -hmm. those fundamental things that you've been asking OU to do that they have not done? Yeah, so it's a a huge increase in funding and support, recruitment and retention in black faculty, particularly, but faculty of color in general, as well as staff, um, and then also students. And what Unheard did, I think, beautifully in their documents was they laid out the numbers, right? Because this is a higher ed institution, um, and white supremacy speaks in numbers, right? We need the quantitative data. Um, And Unheard laid it out, like, really clearly, the percentage of black faculty on this campus, right? The percentage of black staff, right? The level of turnover for, you know, black employees um, at this university. So that's a, a really key one. You know, I also think... After SAE, it was implementing some sort of diversity training, which we now know is uh, here at OU. It hasn't been as successful as intended, and I think intentionally so, because I think much of what President Bourne, um, who was this sort of 
Symbolic leader. Symbolic leader, right? He was, you know, this this really, like, powerful force at OU. Everybody loved him. Debo, you wanted a selfie. It was like he was a presidential candidate, right? He was at one time. Um, so Debo was, I think, and I wrote a paper on this, was much more worried about um, saving face, right, and, and clearing his image and clearing the image of his university than he was actually addressing the structure. And that's what Bert's been saying from the jump is that we're talking about structural change, right? We're not talking about any conversations. We're not talking about, you know, hiring one VP here, one VP there, but we're actually talking about shifting the entire culture here at the university, right? And I think President Bourne wasn't at all worried about that, right? But he was much more worried about getting back in the good graces of the national spotlight, right? So it was, let me bring in my black buddy, right, to now run this office with very little resources. Um, let me implement this little training that's now mandatory for first-year students, and let's keep it pushing, right? right? And shortly after the SAE incident, right, we, we were winning National Diversity Award awards for the work that we were doing, right, which to me is just, like, mind-boggling because it's, like, how after, you know, explicit an explicit over incident occurred, can you now, a year later, be winning National Diversity Awards and somehow be the beacon of hope for all diversity and inclusion on all campuses across this country. It shows just how terrible um, the state of diversity, equity, and inclusion is across the country that, you know, just these couple, honestly, superficial steps, you know, led to these awards. So, As a previous administrator on this campus, I can give you a little insight into those kinds of awards. Yeah. Often there are awards that you apply for yourself, yeah. <laughs> and you can submit all the data that you want mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, will will appear quite rosy because many of us were shocked when we started winning these awards, (laughs) like right on the heels of that, right? Because the HEAT Awards. Yeah. And the HEAT Awards are also... Which higher education... Excellence in diversity. Yeah. Well, the backstory is, is that OU buys a lot of ads in HEAT magazine, and it costs quite a bit of money to apply for a HEAT Award. Um, so there's there's a lot going on That's, there. Uh, yeah. yeah. But you know, <laughs> power politics. You're so on point and unheard was so on point with what OU needs to do. You, mm-hmm. it, it's a very clear prescription for change. Mm-hmm. And not asking a lot. Either. No. I Shouldn't mean, it's really, yeah. I mean, like, you know, mandatory diversity training for faculty, staff, and students. I mean, we go through mandatory Title IX training every year. We go through mandatory alcohol training. We go through mandatory fire safety training. We, you know, we've got all kinds of trainings that we have to do. Why would this not be a priority, yeah. right? Well, uh, so this is this is a big issue, and I would imagine this is maybe something you're still having conversations with them about. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the university, and you expect uh, working with SGA, Student Government Association. If it doesn't have a dollar amount tied to it, they're not going to try to do it. Um, and also, who has it better? So I know in SGA we use a lot of comparison to UT. Uh, so when they were talking about gender-inclusive restrooms, yeah. we compared them to UT. And they're like, oh, UT has 38, we only have two? We can fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like in comparison, what are we doing? How much money, where is this money going to come from? Um, because what we found out, especially during the Gallagher administration, is, you know, university is a business. Um, even though it's a public university, you know, you're supposed to serve the people that they put in their motto, uh, CV et Republicae. You know, you're still a business. You're looking for that bottom line, which is kind of weird because you're university and you're supposed to educate people public institution (laughs) a public institution a non-profit (laughs) so it's kind of like why are you for profit but it really comes down to the money and making people care so I know even when we talk about diversity and inclusion and a lot of diversity inclusion officers they have to talk about well this is how it's going to benefit you you know not that it's for morality and ethics you know that was kind of weird that was an ethics professor who said you know but it's because you know this will help your bottom line this will help you win more awards this will help you get more grants and so that's really the the motive that i found out you know joining bert you know if it doesn't help the university's bottom line it might as well just disappear or the image or something of that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and this is the really frustrating i think part of white culture at ou elsewhere what white people in power don't understand is that their bottom line is being affected by events like yesterday. Mm -hmm. And the work of inclusion and diversity 
is the work of the future, is going to put OU in a place in which it can excel in ways that affect the bottom line. I hate to talk about it in that language, but if you were in an admissions meeting with uh, some of the senior officers in admissions, the language that they use to describe applicants, potential students, is purely economic language, um, where students and potential students are commodified. And the language that they're using and that they're very aware of is that students of color with high test scores are the most highly sought commodity on the university market. And I'll tell you what, ain't none of them really want to go to OU right now. Yeah. And and that that's bad for business, right? So OU, but what OU is doing is seeking the the ease, the lowest hanging fruit, mm-hmm. and the lowest hanging fruit are middle of the line test score white kids from the suburbs mm-hmm. that can't get into UT, um, that want to go to a major Big Twelve institution and have the football life and the fraternity life, and they pay out of state tuition, and so. OU is and has always been in that posture that that's the most important group. And I'm going to go a step further and say that you see in recent and past OU public statements that they're paying a mind to that group. And that's a conservative group that cares about First Amendment protections of hate speech, Mm -hmm. um, that cares about protecting white men like Peter Gade Mm -hmm. um, from full accountability and repercussions. All of this is just something that white people in power have not yet to understand that the business of empowerment of people of color, of marginalized groups, is something that has a return for them as well. Mm -hmm. There is something rewarding beyond moral reward of empowering black folk as a white person. And it can play out in a way that affects the bottom line positively as well. Yeah, the corporate infiltration, of course, of higher ed has been going on for a long time. And I do hate to have this kind of conversation about the economics Mm -hmm. of diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity. But the fact is, is that, you know, you can't do diversity, inclusion, and equity work unless you're going to fund it, unless you're going to be committed to it in a resource kind of way. And so, you know, I mean, I think to say about Jess's comment, I think they do understand that this affects their reputation and their bottom line. Yeah. But but what you said, Miles, is that they're not really interested in doing the actual structural work. They're mm-hmm. interested more in the window dressing. Mm-hmm. Let's right. have some conversations. Let's invite people to campus. Let's make it look like mm-hmm. we're doing something rather than instituting mandatory trainings, actually recruiting, retaining faculty, mm-hmm. students, staff of color, those are the things, right, that have really got to happen. And so, and that's where, you know, for us, we're looking for that kind of accountability, yeah. you know, not just the look at us. We've got somebody coming to campus that mm-hmm. makes us look and, diverse. I mean, and the people who are making these decisions that we've seen time and time again after all these incidents happen um, have dropped the ball time and time again, I think, purposefully. And, you know, why are they still in positions of power when this university is purporting to care so deeply, right, that their um, their top concern is that of diversity and inclusion and making a safer space for students of color, for marginalized students. Um, but the people who are actually making these decisions, particularly about faculty, at least it seems to us could give two shits less, yeah. right, about students of color and about recruiting and retaining faculty of color, right? And if that's who you have that is making all of these decisions, even if you do have a VP there and a VP over here who, um, you know, are, are advocates for students, if, you know, one of your top administrators, you know, really isn't interested in any of this work, right, then nothing is really going to change. And again, it all is just this kind of superficial fix of, okay, hey, well, how, who can we meet with? Um, who are the most vocal students that we can meet with, get on the good side, right. and be all good with, right? Yeah. Um, and that's very much what they've tried to do with us as a bird. And, you know, we've, I think, done a good job <laughs> of sort of toting that line of, you know, playing nice in the room, but also, you know, ready to light up some fire when it, it needs to be done and, you know, letting them know that we're not going to let up. Even when we are friendly, yeah. right, to their face, we're still going to, like, let them know um, outside of those rooms that they're slacking, that, that these demands still aren't met, right, that yeah. they're still not doing what they need to be doing on campus. And I think that goes for all administration and some administrators are more receptive to it um, and are willing to listen and at least, you know, agree and say that they need to be doing better. And some are just radio silent. And I think most yeah. know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. 
so. Provost Harper. That's what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> I'll say his name. Provost Harper has been in here for 20 years and hasn't said anything. He's been here since Unheard, the Bourne administration, mm-hmm. since Gallagher administration. Hasn't said a word. Um, he has and, a long yeah, we, history of no commitment to this issue. Yeah, yeah and uh, going off of what Miles said, I have a great relationship with Dr. Surratt, but I will be very critical. And Dr. Hippolyte, you know, she, this is only her 35th day, I think, on campus. Yeah. And she's already caught the fire. And I already told her, like, you know, we can be cool, but, you know, I'm going to tell you, if you ain't doing your job, you got to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's respect and understanding, you know, they have their job to do. And, you know, I tell my community I have one thing to do. And I'm unapologetically critical about it. And I had to tell them that. Um, and that just comes with the job of doing it. And when we're talking about situations that happen, education in the university mindset, so explanation about university administration, you know, you have your regents, then you have your president, and then you have their senior vice presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about the provost, he's over um, a recruitment, education, faculty and staff, you know, what does your education curriculum looks like? And I know they had a meeting today. I haven't heard back from what happened in the, um, yeah. the class today because I know they were in there, you know. Um, then, you know, the dean's answer to him uh, directly. Then you have your chief financial officer who is over, you know, Bursar, um, scholarships, financial aid. And, you know, when Gallagher was removing money uh, with Project Threshold, you know, we didn't hear anything from the chief financial officer over how can I help. You know, it was, well, it's not in the budget, so... It can get cut. Um, You know, when we're talking about more scholarships for students, you know, and making fees not equivalent to tuition, where's the chief financial officer to be found? Um, You know, we have the people over HR. We haven't heard much from them talking about how they're going to implement change and how they're going to change the way they uh, find faculty and staff, you know, do their searches, or how are you going to make sure that your faculty and staff on campus um, still stay who are people of color, um, because the turnaround time for black staff faculty or even people of color, you know, once they're done here, you know, they're done. Um, student life has been one of the uh, greatest examples of that. They just got a full staff. Uh, for almost a year, they didn't have anybody because who wants to come to Oklahoma and be a person of color? You know, that's not a job you just take on. That's emotional toll as well. You know, you're not just supporting students. You have to support yourself. You know, what are you going to do when your administration doesn't find you valuable or you find out they pay you less? Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, it's all these things tied up into one. The number one side these conversations about. And, you know, as Bert, you know, we try to say, you know, Here's the thing. Here's what we're trying to do. But it's been the same thing, you know, black students um, unheard has been saying for the past, you know, five years. The only difference is it's a different face. It's Jamela instead of Alexis Hall saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is Moss Francisco instead of uh, Lauren saying it. It's the same story just coming out of a different mouth. One of the questions I have for you is this issue of protecting speech. Mm-hmm. I obviously have a passion for free speech. But I understand that there's free speech and then there's shit speech that shouldn't be protected. But this is quite controversial. But this brings up, I think, one of the structural issues in higher ed and particularly at OU is that we tend to think of hate speech as protected speech in the classroom. Mm. Um, and everybody claims it's a First Amendment right. It's academic freedom, right? Academic freedom relates to a structural issue here. Any company, mm. if we're going to treat it like a company, right, any company can set standards for what kind of language is acceptable, for what kind of behavior is acceptable. You all sign a student code of conduct, mm. right? It can be written into the student code of conduct that mm-hmm. that this kind of behavior is not allowed. These are structural issues. Yep. What is your response to that? How do you feel about this constant response from these administrators that this is First Amendment protected speech and academic freedom? Well, uh, yeah. And when that last statement from interim President Haraz came out with this latest incident, and again, we are beginning a statement essentially excusing all behavior, right? Saying that the university can do nothing. And this is who we are as a university, right? So there are social consequences, quote unquote. But there are no real repercussions or consequences for when students, faculty, or staff do these things. So actually in our um, original demands a little over a year ago, we called for a zero tolerance policy. And President Gallagher at that time, VP Surratt, who had just gotten on campus, uh, Dean of Students, and some lawyers, uh, I'm sure Haraz was there, 
um, and other uh, legal counsels and Neil, whoever else, um, were on that team, you know, trying to figure out, yeah. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sort of zero tolerance policy fell through the cracks. And every time we were asked about it or asked for updates or anything like that, it was a First Amendment, right? Um, and, and often, and I think this is the, the higher ed um, industrial complex, right? When when students are demanding things, calling for things, and um, are being o- outward and open and, and using our power and voice as students, um, higher up administrators cloud us in bureaucracy, right? And say that, well, we have to take these certain steps. We have to make sure that we're not infringing on anybody's rights, right? And um, use certain jargon, frankly, to try to scare students away from doing it, right? And th- honestly, we've not backed down from it, right? Yeah, Even right. when the zero tolerance policy kind of fell through, um, you know, we're still looking to have, um, like, how can we get this into the student code of conduct, into the code of conduct for the university where hate speech is not protected by the university? And again, these conversations um, need to be had, and we can't continue to excuse clear hate speech, right? There's, There's no educational use for the word, particularly by a white professor ever under any context to be using a word with such generational trauma and violence attached to it. And as long as the university is protecting it and showing that there are no repercussions, um, whiteness on this campus, white students, faculty, and staff, um, and the, the system of white supremacy that they benefit from are going to continue moving the status quo, right? Nothing is going to change. Um, and black students, students of color, international students, uh, marginalized students are going to continue to suffer on this campus as a result. Um, and at the end of the day, it's, you know, who are you serving? Yeah. Yeah. for the OU administration and OU faculty and staff um, and who are you actually looking to protect or defend um, whose rights um, and whose positionality on this campus do you actually care about and it's clear time and time again regardless of administration with three presidents in now um, you know since I've been here at OU <laughs> um, and just, just I mean it's clear <laughs> it's clear that black students aren't at the forefront right speeches are cool right it's all cool to say things Right, but your actions speak significantly louder than any type of words can, and it's clear that you know I'm not your top priority as a black student on this campus. Um, that international students aren't your top priority, right? That um, our DACA recipients on campus, our undocumented community on campus, aren't your top priority. But the top priority is that bottom line is that profit and is saving face with our donors. And what does it feel like to those things? He's not the priority. Black mm-hmm. students are not the priority. But when you listen to Joe Harris speak, diversity is his uttered highest priority, Mm -hmm. is what he says. How does that feel as a black student at OU to hear Mm -hmm. you and uh, being used as a talking point Mm -hmm. and not in reality? It's tokenization in a sense. One thing I always find so funny with the university is how... Uh, people will say, oh, diversity inclusion policy, and then yell boomer sooner. Um, <laughs> uh, like that is not offensive to Native populations. And one thing, you know, when we talk about diversity inclusion, it's just so crazy how, like, it's just, I just call BS. Because, like, where are you spending your money? Did you spend more money on diversity inclusion policy? You know, when we did the diversity and inclusion officer search, every diversity inclusion officer who was a candidate said, you know, Y'all office is not enough people are in there to be yep. working for this as a university or even its other two satellite campuses. Right. So first of all, you know, you're not even structuring the staff enough to be successful. They're going to get burnt out. Also that, you know, are you giving them the jurisdiction and power to do what they need to do? Not only is it just the job yeah. of the president looking at diversity and inclusion. But is your regents looking at diversity and inclusion as an actual thing? Or are they just looking at it as a checkbox? What are your deans looking at diversity and inclusion as? Now we know Ed Kelly at Gaylord, you know, obviously in the news today, doesn't see it as that much of an issue. You know, and when we're talking about diversity and inclusion policy, are you waiting on Bert to tell you to do it? Or are you doing it yourself? You know, um, not only that, how are you spending money as a university? And I always look at the bottom line. Even for SGA, you know, you know, anybody wants to spit diversity and inclusion policy okay, show me your budget. How much money are you spending towards this? How much money are you spending towards this? Uh, over the past few years, what was your increase? Did you spend at an increase or did you spend at a decrease? Uh, let's adjust for inflation if you want to play that game. You know, let's look at the numbers since everybody wants to talk a numbers game. Oh, well, it's difficult because of this. It's BS. Right. It's full BS. Um, I can see right through it. I've been in college for a while. I know how to BS something. One of the sad realities of our situation here at OU is 
well, just let's just take the OU announcement, you know, this last week, Joe Harris's statement on the OU Facebook page, 500 and some odd comments that I cringed while I weeded through them. Mm. Um, let's, You're brave. The, 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 <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is that, you know, it's going to take courage mm. among this leadership to be able to do exactly what you're saying, Jamila, and and commit the funds, what you're saying, Miles, and commit the funds. And what the, the structural change, it's going to take an extreme amount of courageous, moral leadership mm-hmm. because look at the response. Look at the people that our leaders are having to pander to. Mm-hmm. And they, they come through from that community. They may even well, as in some people in our leadership, may even fully, you know, agree with the comments of that community, of those people that are critical of diversity, inclusion, and equity Mm -hmm. advancements at OU or or conversations at OU. I can't really characterize it as advancement, right? But but that it's, it's, it's more on the agenda. We're obviously seeing more and more of it. And maybe that's the first step. It's only the first step, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact, but this is the hard reality. Hell, I read that shit and it's painful for me. Mm. I can't even imagine, right? Mm. Yeah. I hope you just avoid the comments. Oh, we do. Entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, but is this not the reality? Our leadership has to be extremely courageous. Yeah. People like Ed Kelly have to be courageous and say immediately, this is not acceptable. But instead, that's not what they do. That's not who they are. And it's the question of a, you know, of a lifetime. Right. Since since Africans were first taken from the shores of Africa and brought to a new land, um, since indigenous people and cultures were taken and, and, and a process of genocide was created um, for this country, this idea of whiteness. Right. And I think for that to ever happen, you know, white people have to begin to see um, their privilege and, you know, analyze it in a really deep and ugly and, and hurtful and uncomfortable way. Right. Right. And I think there's a decision that all white people make throughout their lives. And there's um, today, you know, multiple chances to make these decisions because injustices are clear, smack dab right in front of us um, every day. And the decision that white people get to make is, you know, am I going to continue to move with the system and turn the other way and ignore my privileges, right, and continue to use them as a Mm -hmm. result, right, but not confront them in any way, right, and as a result oppress all these people who I'm just not going to look at and just going to ignore, right, or am I going to actively confront those systems, right, and look at my privilege, right, and look at my connection to white supremacy and to whiteness as this social construct, this really powerful political construct, but nonetheless a made-up thing, this Mm -hmm. idea of race, and confront it, right, and 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 do away with that privilege, and and, and try to use that privilege in spaces to actively um, create a more just society, a more just campus. And I think what you see is a vast majority of white people choose the latter, right? They they choose to continue to use that privilege and and just take the easier route. And I think that's clear um, with administration, with faculty, with staff. And that again, going back to your question, Jess. Um, for President Haras to continually um, say that diversity and inclusion is our top priority here on this campus for his administration, right? right? He said that to us, right, in private meetings after whatever racist incident happened, right? He said it um, in speeches to every group, right? right. He's, he's very proud of that fact that he continues to talk about diversity and inclusion. But again, if the person, Jamila, just laid out the huge purview, the huge power that Provost Harper has on this campus, right? Right. He's not actively working against the systems that oppress me, right? That oppress queer and trans people on this campus, right? That oppress women, right? And as a result, Angela Davis says, right, it's not enough in a racist society to be not racist, right? We have to be anti-racist, right? So I need administrators, I need faculty, I need staff to be open, to be honest um, about their privileges, about the unlearning process, right? But also when these things happen, to be vocal, yeah. in their community, but also on social media, reaching out to us and to be vocal about this thing that is whiteness and this really insidious nature of it and the omnipresence of it, um, because without it, nothing's going to change. Right. 
Me yeah. and Jamila can lead as many marches as we want, right? Megaphones, cool pictures can be on my Instagram yeah. of me leading a big group of black people, right? That's all great and fine, but nothing's actually going to change, right? The system isn't going to be dismantled until white people make a, a massive shift. There has to be this mass movement um, to begin to confront white supremacy. Right. Um, and we're just not there um, on this campus or in society, period, because it does, it's, it takes bravery, it takes courageousness to be the only one, right, to stand yeah. alone well, in that yeah. space. Well, as, as someone who has stood up publicly to violate white solidarity, I mean, and, and look, I'm not going to say anything about the courage that that takes, but what I do know is that what people watch, other white people watch what happens to people like me, what happens to people like just what happens to white people when they do violate that mm-hmm. white solidarity, when mm-hmm. they do stand up and confront white supremacy. Yeah. You know, I've been vocal as of late about tenured faculty, for example, particularly white tenured faculty, people with lifetime job security mm-hmm. that, you know, like me, fortunately, I had tenure. They could fire me as a dean, but they couldn't fire me, fire me because I had tenure. Mm-hmm. And I and that is such an incredible privilege and position that there is no reason why if somebody like Peter Gade can be protected and use the language that he uses and treat students the way he treats them and be protected, Mm -hmm. why other white faculty can't stand up and be Mm anti-racist, right? This is what really baffles me. But then they see what happens. They see what happens to people who do. And trying to set that example, but also set the example of, look, life is better when you do that. Mm. You open your, I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, I, right. I have a hard time articulating it maybe mm. because I'm still kind of living it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do know that people have run from people like me and just like crazy because we become toxic. And so it just disincentivizes them. That's yeah. how they reinforce the system. That's yeah. how leaders you know, if you want to call them that, how mm-hmm. people in charge, powerful people, people like Harris and Harper can maintain that system is by perpetuating a system of fear. Because look what happened to her. You know, mm-hmm. look what, what, what happens to, to him. Look what happens to people who yeah. actually do that work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's like a double whammy, yeah. you yeah. know, in many ways and really, really frustrating. Yeah. You know, especially, and I want to say this to our our white listeners, what Miles and Suzette and Jamila are talking about takes a lot of courage. What they're talking about is is listening. So often we as white people, um, our culture compels us to assert our ways of confidence in knowing and having moral conviction. And the way racism has been present and the term and the understanding of it has evolved since the 60s and since forever Um, that when we white people talk about issues of race we all get scared and so I always try to take this opportunity to tell briefly my story about um, you know my experiences with race I'm a white man who grew up on east side Oklahoma City Um, me and my little brother were the only white kids in Pleasant Hill Elementary School and so when I got to the OU, I did not really fit into this culture. Then I got into the work of diversity and inclusion, and I thought that I knew everything that I was doing. And the fact of the matter is, is that I was still exhibiting white supremacist, racist behaviors, I mean, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so I had to be able to have students like Miles, Jamila, black stu- faculty, native faculty, really get confrontational with me to tell me what I'm doing is white supremacist and racist. And it hurt. It really was painful to have those experiences. But what we're talking about in a cultural change is to be able to to be patient with yourself, Mm -hmm. to hear that these things that you've grown up around, um, that's okay by your, but in your cultures and your families, when you hear that we're now saying as a community, that's racist behavior. That's white supremacist behavior. We understand, I think Miles and everyone and Jamela are saying that it takes a lot of courage to accept that, to process that. And that's the process we're asking you to undergo. And then understand that even today, after all the experiences that I've had, I'm gonna walk out of this place 
and I'm going to go exhibit some more white supremacist racist behavior because I was raised to be that way. And all I can do is my best to listen to people of color when they tell me what I'm doing and, and continue to learn and to be educated, but not expect perfection, but attempt to undergo this this process of introspection and listening. Mm-hmm. And so what we're what I think is really the most frustrating piece about this is you listen to Jamela and, and Miles here today and they're laying out a solution to the problems at OU. But we have the white privilege, the white supremacy in the administration that doesn't have the humility to listen. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have the humility to be introspective, to accept that, you know, some of the ways we are we need to deal with mm-hmm. and 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 white people are so afraid of that one thing like i always like say i'm uncomfortable all the time so yeah. you can be uncomfortable for like five minutes right. to tell a story you know the cost of you speaking out is not the cost of my sanity um it's not it's not equal it's not the same as a black student on this campus i know a lot of fellow black students feel the same you know we're always uncomfortable you know the only class I do feel comfortable is in AFL. Mm-hmm. And even in that class, you know, people are uncomfortable for 50 minutes and most of the times drop that class because they don't want to yeah. sit in and understand it. And it's just, like, put into retrospective, right? Um, even I have a place of privilege of being cisgendered, and I can take a few moments to, like, sit here and listen to the concerns of trans students and say, okay, this is what I need to do with my privilege. Right. Um, this is what I could do with my privilege as an American um as an American student, you know, and let's say the needs of international students and support them. It's simple as that, you know. It took an hour of my time last week to just go support, go say, what do you need? You know, what can I do for you? It doesn't take that much just to change your rhetoric. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a learning institution. And when we talk about, you know, calling out and reporting stuff, it's against the law to reprimand somebody for reporting what's wrong. So in, in any way, shape, or form, you get reprimanded for filing a Title IX lawsuit or filing with the EEOC, which is the Equal Employment yeah. Opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you get reprimanded for that, you can sue. You know, understand that, you know, if this environment is not fostering to learn, um, at the end of the day, you know, students can sue. Black students can sue because it's not an environment that allows us to learn. You're not mm-hmm. setting out what you can do. And I think it takes time to educate people. So people are like, oh, well, I'm scared. What are you scared of? The law has your back. And this, you want to use the First Amendment to protect somebody, use the First Amendment to protect yourself in the same aspect and understanding the laws that allow you to um, move about and make change, you know, even though the law is not always correct, you know, use the law to when it is correct to help, you know, use your privilege. Right. And I also think, you know, people with privilege, whatever system of oppression we're talking about, people who benefit from those systems have very little to lose, right, um, when they actually combat it. So I think it is absolutely true that when white people choose to use their privilege, to combat white supremacy or to combat um, privilege or to call out the ways that racism, institutional racism shows up in whatever space they're talking about, that system absolutely turns on you, right? Because that's the opposite of what it wants, right? When I say all the time, when the system is working at its best, people of privilege are completely ignorant to their privilege, right? It's right. the fish and water uh, concept. Right. Um, but to understand that, again, like Jamila was saying, just, you know, when you are in that place of discomfort or and when you're in a place of you're feeling uncomfortable, right, you're feeling a bit guilty or shameful, right, imagine what it is to be a black person on this campus, right, or in society. Imagine what it is to be an un- undocumented immigrant, right, right um, in, in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and humble yourself, right, because you're, whatever you're going through pales in comparison to actually being oppressed, right? And I, and I also want to say that it's liberating when you get to that place. It is. That is the truth. Right? Yeah. Um, so for me, like, as, you know, I have a lot of privilege, even as a black person in this country, right? So it, it's been eye-opening for me to, you know, be allowed to be in, you know, feminist spaces, right, and to learn from um, intersectional and black feminists, right, and, and, to, and to engage in the literature and to really free myself from the shackles um, that are normative masculinity, toxic masculinity, right? And it's been really helpful for me to just 
be comfortable in my masculinity, to be comfortable in my sexuality and not feel like I constantly have to prove my manhood or prove my sexuality, right? And I think it's the same thing with whiteness. I think it's the same thing um, with cis normativity. I think it's the same thing with heteronormativity. Whatever system you want to talk about, it really is liberating when you no longer are bogged down with the pressures of oppressing other people. Um, And to also note that, you know, when you get to that place, and it is perpetual, it is constant work, right? So it's not just a ding, we're good, uh, I'm done, right? But it's it's a journey. But I think, you know, when you get to that place, it is just so liberating because you are no longer embarking on this state-sanctioned violence that is systems of oppression. So. Yeah. And to reemphasize that and to hear it to our listeners from two white people who have taken on white people and suffered in ways that a lot of people look at and say, oh, my God, I would, I would never do that. Where I stand today after having called out David Bourne and Trip Hall for their crimes and misconduct. I am living my best life. I went through pain, it was tough, it was rough, but the liberation, the authenticity, the rediscovering who I am, my principles clinging to them um, has been the most rewarding experience of my life. And I know Suzette. I feel the same way. Yeah. 110%. Well, Miles and Jamila, thank you so much for being here today. We could go on and hopefully (laughs) you will return and come back for another discussion because there's still so much to discuss. There's so much um, that people need to hear from the two of you and and others. And so hopefully we can carry on this conversation. But really appreciate you being with us on our campus, not only on the on our campus podcast, but on our campus (laughs) at the University of Oklahoma. You are are amazing. And we we would really love to continue to work with you definitely thank you for having us thanks so much for having us thanks for for everything you do absolutely (laughs) we're here for you too appreciate it appreciate it thank you for joining us for this episode of on our campus a podcast dedicated to exposing corruption discrimination and misconduct on college campuses You've been listening to Jess Eddy and me talk about issues of corruption in higher education. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this discussion or answer any questions you might have. You can send us an email at onourcampuspodcast at gmail.com, as well as follow and interact with us on Twitter and Facebook at On Our Campus. For more information about this show and how you can get involved, visit us on the web at www.onourcampuspodcast.com. We hope that you too are ready to eliminate systemic corruption in public higher education as we all deserve better. For my co-host, Jess Eddy, producer Jackie Braun, and everyone at On Our Campus, I'm Suzek Rawat.